Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well on this Thursday morning. Uh, here in California, it's raining, which is a just a pleasant, refreshing thing to have happened. Although there's, I understand there's flooding someplace, and I understand there's major storms across the country. But hope everybody's all safe and sound and warm in their homes. So this morning, um, I am just pleased to uh, have Victoria on the phone here uh, on on. Uh, PIC classified and Victoria. No, we had a little glitch this morning, so I don't even have your last name. So, could you tell everybody who you are? Sure thing. Sure thing. Thank you for having me on the show. My name is Victoria Rusk. I'm a mitigation specialist out of Houston, Texas. And recently I wrote a book called The Handbook for Mitigation. And it's basically a practical guide for the community around a criminal case. That's that's fabulous. Um, So mitigation, for those of you that don't know, um, involves uh, getting into social history, family history, records, everything there is about a person who is charged with a criminal case. Um, so I have not seen your book, uh, Victoria, tell us how you came, came to write that. Well, I have been a criminal defense mitigation specialist for multiple years since 2011. And what I noticed was a, there's not enough mitigation specialists. And then when I'm also out in the field working, nobody knows what mitigation specialist does. Don't, don't know the word, um, (laughs) you know, have been, you know, mistaken as a cop, mistaken as, like, what are you doing knocking on my door? Why do you want to talk about him or her with me? And so the book really came from a place where I wanted to have something to give clients and mitigation witnesses so they would be more prepared, more cooperative to get on board with what it is that we need to do to save their, their loved one's life in capital murder cases and Mm -hmm. or save them some years in non-capital cases um, definitely mitigates or lessens in the punishment phase of a trial. Correct. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, and so, so Victoria, are you a private investigator? I do have, I am licensed under a PI. Um, so I do have that licensure, but I am not, I don't really utilize it because I don't investigate crimes. I investigate the person. I mitigate the person, not necessarily the crime. And how I kind of explain it to people is that the PI is the who, what, where, how. And the mitigation is the why, the real why behind the crime or what led a person to be in this you know, situation and circumstances that they're at and that we're all working to resolve. So, uh, but, um, but you are, what, so you work as an employee for a private investigator? 
No, I do have the license because since mitigation is not regulated right now, there's not any licensure for a mitigation specialist. There's a variety of professionals that do mitigation, whether they're a social worker or PI or a lawyer or a journalist. That's what my background's in. Um, So since there's not that, Harris County, where I work a lot, they wanted more mitigation specialists to have a PI license. So I went through the avenues you need to go through to be licensed under someone. And um, that's why or, you know, how I got my PI license. But I really don't utilize it as much because I don't investigate crimes. I do the mitigation investigation. Okay, so you should know that, or maybe you do know, there is much controversy about this. And yeah, that, there is. Yeah, and um, that the general understanding from folks is that when you're doing interviews with people, regardless of how it it's set, is set up regarding a legal matter, unless you're a psychologist or an attorney, um, a license, a private investigator license is required. Now, I know it varies from state to state, and it, um, and there's been, and here in California, there's also been much, much discussion about it as well. Um, but probably uh, the PI community would, would uh, think you need to be licensed. So I, I'm actually very happy that you're licensed, even though you're saying you don't use it, but if it came to, uh, push came to shove, uh, it might be required just because of what you're doing. Yeah. So again, I guess that's, is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's attorney client privilege. You, I'm operating under the license of the attorney as well, because I am hired either by the court or the family to assist the attorney. Actually that even, even then, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to push back on you at all, but even then, um, that say a private investigator, somebody was doing investigation for an attorney, they would have to be either an employee in California anyway, either an employee or have a license. And uh, that would, would be the way a mitigation specialist uh, would be viewed as well. But that's a, that's a whole different subject. We want to talk about um, mitigation. So how did you, how did you start down this path, Victoria? So my background is in journalism, and I was a journalist for many years, Um, and I got out. I basically left journalism, worked in public relations for a little bit, and then in 2008, I got laid off. And my friend, who was a lawyer, said, Victoria, you have all the skills to do mitigation. I want to introduce you to this group of lawyers that I think you know, you should work for. I can't get you the job, but I can get you the interview. So I went through the interviewing process for a public defender's office that only did capital cases right. here in Texas. And I got hired and I worked for them for about two years. And then we had a meeting of the minds and didn't agree. Let's just put it like that. And I started mm-hmm. my business right mm-hmm. afterwards um, and started, you know, learning how do you build a mitigation business because I had the skill set to do the mitigation, but I mm-hmm. needed to understand the process of owning a business and how do you go about getting cases and, you know, getting your LLC and, you know, knowing all the, the business side of things. 
So that's how I got introduced was somebody recognized my skill set as a writer, as a humanitarian, and said, hey, this looks like this would be good for you. So I would say that, you know, the business came calling for me, and I said yes, not me necessarily going and looking for it. <laughs> right. Sometimes that's the way it happens. Uh, right. For sure. So, um, so your, your background as a journalist, what were you doing? What kind of, what kind of journalism were you doing? Yeah, so I worked for a couple of Fox affiliates as a news producer where I would organize information. So we would have all these different stories. I had a few reporters working on the show that I was working on. And I, you know, had a strong writing skill set through college. I got my degree in public relations, actually. And just really, I guess the writing was, which was so attractive to attorneys and being able to interview and research and connect the dots for people who are, you know, either just listening or reading. And so I think that that's kind of what my strength was. So working in television, broadcast journalism, oh my gosh, six years, seven years, kind of led me to this work. And then that time that I was laid off, I worked in construction for my aunt's <laughs> construction company. So I worked with so many felons, which was kind of just a, you know, just a weird circumstance. And then whenever I interviewed at the public defender's office and I went back to my job, you know, we were working on a, a big mansion. They were just like, Victoria, I've been to jail. I'm on parole right now this is how it is. Are you sure you think that's something that you can do? You're going to be talking to people, you know, like me. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So do you, do you see this as a calling? It sounds like you do. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Uh Like I feel that when I started, when they first told me what's mitigation and I Googled it, I was like, damn, this sounds, dangerous. You know, I wasn't really sure. And so, but then when I started working and I'm meeting my clients and their families and their teachers and coaches, you know, their employers, you know, at the time, some of their exes, this like digging more and more deep. And then it really coincided with my interest in human development and birth order and mental illness and behaviors and why do people do what they do and how do we get motivated, you know, and all the different ways that I have a natural investigative mind that I'm just curious and a student of life. So it totally panned out for my greater good. And Mm -hmm. when I started my business, then I could go to all the trainings I wanted to go to. I could read Mm -hmm. all the books I wanted to. I could really get more creative in how I did cases. Fascinating. Well, you're in the right place. There's, <laughs> Harris County right. would set the standard, I guess, for death penalties. And uh, so you have a lot of work to do. Yeah. When I first got here, we were the number one county in the United States charging capital murder. Now it's mm. a county in Louisiana, I believe. But yeah, in Texas, Texas death row, 80% of the people on death row are from Harris County. Yeah, I, I'm aware of that as well. Uh, we have a lot of people on death row in California, I think 700 and some, uh, but the, there's a moratorium on the death penalty, and it, the da- gas chamber has been dismantled. 
So mm-hmm. they're just kind of sitting in a holding pattern for sure. Who knows what's what's going to happen in California. Um, right. But, okay, so, um, so this is <laughs> – I love how people – get into various roles in their lives. It's always so right. fascinating because many of them are accident as yours is. It seems like yeah. mine was as well. Uh, just uh, yeah. You probably never in a million years thought of this when you were growing up, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I didn't ever even like consider that this would be, you know, one of my strengths, but I think being curious and being a hard worker and a go-getter. I mean, I remember when I was 12 years old, being willing to mow lawns, wash cars, babysit, whatever, to go get my nails done. You know, whatever I could do to make money, I was totally down. Like my, even younger than that, like this work ethic that I have, I remember my brothers were in baseball. And so we were at the baseball field all the time. And I didn't really know what to do. And I was bored watching them. And I didn't care to watch them. So I went and worked at the concession stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think you, that in criminal defense, like you just can't give up, and you just have to keep going or figuring out whatever it is, and having that willingness to go the extra mile—that's what our clients and their families deserve. Plus, it really sounds like you like interacting with people since you're drawn to to that. So, for um, sure, for sure. Yeah. So, let's start at the beginning when you get a case. What's the next step? What happens? So whenever I'm called to work on a case, I really do vet the attorneys that I work with because the level and time intensive that it takes for mitigation, I have to make sure that the attorneys understand what mitigation is and what I'm really required to do under the ABA guidelines. And that means that there is a time factor in mitigation that's really, really important and that our interaction with the client, like where are they with client relations? And then are they considered, are they considerate of educating the court about mitigation? Because we're still in a position right now in 2021 where every case that I get put on, I want to give the court not just a motion requesting mitigation, but also a declaration that shares what mitigation is, what I'm going to have to do, all the records that I have to get and all of the little things, the details that a judge needs to know that we need to put on the record so that we are CYA of what the actual job is. So once me and the attorney are on the same page about educating the court on mitigation and I get appointed or the client pays me, then from there I meet the client. And I really spend a considerable amount of time for the first month or so just getting to know the client. Sometimes it might take two months to get to know the client and what they're, where they are and meeting them where they're at and interviewing people, getting people to sign releases and start the record collection process, which is very tedious because it's just not the client that I might be requesting records are depending on who and where they are in their life, I might need to request records on the mother. And in capital murder cases, particularly investigating three generations back is mandatory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So really starting that records collection and getting to know my client is the first step. Then I will branch out 
to their immediate community, whether it's their parents, their spouse, their employer, you know, kind of their day in the life of witnesses to really get to know them and their life patterns little by little and being considerate of some of these witnesses are going to need to be interviewed multiple times, just like my client, to Mm -hmm. getting that space and that, you know, comfort level that they are disclosing information. Because as a mitigation specialist, I'm a lot better, better listener than I am asking the questions because we want the information to flow in that direction, which is a little bit different than an investigator where they are looking for facts, figures, times, like I said, the how, the where, the when, the what. And a mitigation specialist is creating a space for disclosure, for someone to speak their truth, knowing that what they say to me is likely what they're going to say on the stand. And so being able to take in that information requires that the atmosphere that we're in is comfortable, rapport is strong, and they trust the process. Actually, Victoria, that is not different than conducting criminal defense interviews with witnesses. (laughs) What you described is, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, you're directed toward the facts, but the process, the atmosphere, the development of relationships, the development of trust, letting them say their truth is the same. It's the same. But uh, I digress. I want to go back to, you mentioned ABA guidelines. So um, Mm -hmm. let's tell folks what ABA guidelines are. Okay, the ABA guidelines are the... American Bar Association's guidelines for mitigation. And the they came out, you know, I guess, well, in 2003 is whenever they were published. And it basically, you know, set forth these guidelines where how mitigation is conducted. And it really sets the standard, including, you know, case law and all this kind of stuff of, like, what, a mitigation specialist is supposed to do for a capital murder case, how many hours it is required, what, you know, even what the lawyer needs to do. It's really defined in the ABA guidelines. And that kind of had created the structure for mitigation specialists to be required on capital cases. And then for non-capital cases nowadays, we really refer back to those guidelines to you know, cover our, the way we do things, like CYA, that's like the best mm-hmm. phrase mm-hmm. I can come up with. Mm-hmm. But it really does set a, like, give us security in what we're doing, if we can refer, you know, back to those. In my book, I go through it in detail, um, you know, enough for a person to kind of understand that this is something that you have, um available to you and your attorney or your team and that, you know, this kind of sets the the foundation, I guess, of mitigation back in 2003, which was not that long ago mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to conduct mitigation investigations on a regular basis. But it really came from capital 
cases and wanting to give the client or each case exactly what they need if you were going to try to um, use death as a form of punishment. And and what happened in 2003? The ABA guidelines were produced and published. In 2003? Yes. The guidelines for mitigation. Mm-hmm. Huh, that's interesting because I have guidelines from the early 90s. Uh, maybe they changed them. Yeah, maybe they did. Or maybe that's yeah. from, I mean, I don't know if that's from California or, but I just know that, you know, I was hired on as a mitigation specialist my first job in 2011, and we were required to understand the ABA guidelines to conduct our business or our investigation hmm. in this way. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be just California because ABA is American Bar Association, so it's, it's national. So uh, I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to look at that for sure, um, because some of the things you said are are different than uh, what I knew. So I need to go back and research that. Say, oh, well, say, tell me. Tell me what you know and teach me something new. I'm here to learn too. <laughs> no, we're here to learn from you. <laughs> oh, okay. We can, we, you and I can have a private conversation at another time. Oh, I would love that. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and tell us the name of your book again, because I'm really interested in, in getting this. Okay, it's called The Handbook for Mitigation, a practical guide for the community around a criminal case. Okay. You can get it on my website, heartofjustice.org. And it's $20. Unless you want okay. a signed copy, then I charge an extra five. Okay. Well, of course, I'm going to get a signed copy. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you not get a signed copy? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, this is fascinating. So, um, so when you uh, once you gather all this information, because clearly it's all about establishing relationships. I mean, that's yes. really that's really your strength is establishing yes. relationships with with everybody you come in contact with, because I know when you delve into the mental health of the family, which is part of that process, that uh, it may be offensive to some people to ask them. You know, were, was your mother mentally ill <laughs> or your grandmother right. or your grandfather? It becomes a very touchy subject. So how do you handle that? Yeah, good point. It is such a, you know, delicate thing to talk about with the stigma of mental illness and behavioral dis- disorders and knowing the difference between them. And like I said before, you know, cr- having that safe place, they will tell you. You don't necessarily have to ask. You can listen when you have this filter of understanding signs and symptoms of mental illnesses and the different ways that people talk about schizophrenia or they, mm-hmm. they're they saying the signs and symptoms, but they're not saying that word. Mm-hmm. You can just gather from their context clues what's going on. And then once rapport is stronger, you might want to ask that direct question like, do you think grandma was schizophrenic? 
Mm-hmm. Have you ever talked about that? Did she, you know, see things or hear things? Or was she, you know, how did she always have to have things in an orderly way? You know, there's certain ways that you can ask things softly before you have to ask them directly. Because I believe in my experience that asking things directly come a lot later. First, you're just listening to whatever they're sharing and being an active listener, mirror interviewing. And then once you get more of the relationship established, then you could ask that direct question. So in the first few interviews with a client in particular, I'm not really asking many questions. I'm still focused on having strong rapport and knowing that, you know, they know you're here to learn about them and about their life and how they are motivated and what has influenced their choices in life. Mm-hmm. They sometimes will flat out tell you like, look, I hear things, and I see things, and I know other people don't. Or they might not know that other people don't. And that's another context mm-hmm. clue in really discovering the truth about their mental illness. Right, because so often it's gone undiagnosed. Um, yeah, and but- I think that being less direct in questioning or gathering information in the beginning is winning. And later on, once you have rapport established and they're sharing a little bit more and you have that comfort level or you feel that you have that comfort level, then you might can ask something direct. Um, And it's the same even in sexual abuse, verbal abuse, because some people do not use the word abuse. Mm-hmm. And if you are paying attention to the vocabulary that they're using and the grammar that they're using and describing things, then you can really get on their page a little bit more. So in my business, I would say that most of the time in the beginning of the interviewing and gathering information stage, I'm listening for feelings before facts. I'm listening to the needs that were met or that were not met. And even though I'm not expressing those things outwardly, I'm paying attention to who this person is as a human and working from that place and moving up or leveling up in the relationship or the understanding of the person in their environment, their family dynamics, their the way that they process information and paying attention to the questions that they might be answering or asking of me so that we can have a stronger trust. And then Mm -hmm. the information honestly really just flows so beautifully once trust is established and you can really get so much further than being direct in the beginning. And also, you know, saying like, I know Mrs. Jones, we've talked, you know, twice, And it was so nice meeting you, and thank you for inviting me into your home or letting me come talk to you on your work break. I appreciate that. And talking about what you might be talking about later to help prepare them. Because having that trust and them understanding that they're a part of a process of justice for their loved one, it really debunks any time, space, or idea that somebody's going to be lying to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you've gotten that deep into your relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it pays off when you want them to write an affidavit or to get on the stand or when they 
you know, interact with the attorney on the stand. It's that rapport is what is being processed by the jury. Yeah, good, very good point. We're going to take a break, Victoria, real quick, and we'll be right back okay. with Victoria Rust. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Victoria, who is a mitigation specialist from uh, Harris County, Texas. And uh, she's telling us some fascinating things about how to conduct, how to conduct mitigation for capital cases. And I just, uh, Victoria, I want to come back. You mentioned mirroring when you're interviewing people. Can you talk about that a little bit, explain that to folks that might not know what that is? Sure, sure. Mirror interviewing. Whenever I'm in front of someone who is, um, you know, my client's family, I'm just trying to kind of set the scene for myself. And they're comfort level, I'm looking and taking in, let's say, um, their comfort level. Um, Where are we sitting? Um, The words that they're using. Um, You know, really tapping into their emotions and being a bit more empathic to their feelings to help me guide the interview to the best, you know, possible. And mirror interviewing to me is showing up for the person where they are emotionally, not just like physically I mean, going to their job or to their house or meeting at a McDonald's or whatever that is. You know, it really is about me showing up for them 
emotionally where they are. So really helping them uh, even process their emotions sometimes because they're nervous, they're scared, they're um, ashamed, they're hurt, they're disappointed. And how do I reflect back to them that I am seeing that, hearing that, and feeling that? And, and how do you, how do, you do them, that? How do you do that? Yeah, Victoria? I mean, it's like just creating space, right? So sitting in silence, I think, is important with another person and being able to do it and allowing their thought process to go from their head to their tummy and then bring out whatever information that they're wanting to share or say because they're distraught and -hmm. sitting in that space with them and not pushing them or pressuring them or being too direct with a question Um, because I know and they know too that we want to know stuff about them, about their family, about uh, about their loved one, the person accused of a crime. Mm-hmm. And so I really take into consideration that mirror interviewing is reflecting back on them what I'm hearing, what I'm, what I'm seeing, and what I'm feeling, and seeing if that really, like, lands for them. Because we really are also tapping into um, their emotions, right, of where they are to where, because that determines on how much that they can share, you know, and it all... And, right. And mirror interviewing, it really is feelings before facts. And when you're really committed to interviewing in this way, you are taking into consideration just where they are emotionally and reflecting that back to them and knowing that their feelings are much more important than what actually they might be able to say. As an investigator, as a mitigation specialist, I'm paying attention to what they're saying, of course, and thinking of those details and what that might be something that I need to write down and need to share with the attorney. But in that moment, it is all about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's a really good description. Um, I, I applaud you for that because uh, is, that, is that the way you did your uh, interviews when you were, when you were doing journalism? Um, yeah, if I ever had to conduct interviews when I was in journalism, I wasn't a reporter. I was a producer when I worked, um, for the Fox affiliate. So they would bring the information to me. And the cool thing about being a producer versus a reporter is that we get all the news. So the national, the local, the state news, and then we have to put it in a flow, you know, to make because a lot of people who are watching the news, they're listening more than they're actually watching. So mm-hmm. we write for the ear. And what I took from being a journalist to criminal defense is this idea of a news rundown and turning it into a trial rundown. And mm-hmm. what witness needs to go in what order, what subject matter needs to go before another subject matter, and really working on the strengths of each witness that's going to testify and being so thoughtful about flow. Journalists know a lot about how information flows. So when I prepare for a trial, I'm thinking of that, you know, journalism background that I have and saying like, okay, conviction is over. We're stepping into the punishment phase of the trial now or the punishment hearing. Who does the jury want to listen to first? Because they mm-hmm. might not be in a position to hear right now. Right. So if they can't listen, who is going to be that person to help 
invite them into our narrative. Yeah, I, uh, Victoria, explain. Many people may not know how capital trials work, so let's let's just uh, talk about that structure a little bit. Um, so, from your perspective, tell us how you view what's going on in a capital trial. So, in capital murder trials specifically, um, we know that we're going to go through the guilt innocent phase of the trial first. So the jury is going to have to determine guilty or not guilty. And then we already know that if they're found guilty, the punishment is either life without parole or the death penalty. So that's something that is inherent that we all know as professionals working in criminal defense. So getting ready Mm -hmm. for a trial, there's all the work is in the pretrial. And that punishment hearing specifically can be weeks long. So the DA, of course, is going to put on their punishment trial, which is going to be aggravating factors, you know, all the other crimes that perhaps my my client did commit other crimes. That's going to come up how they behaved in the jail. Um, they're going to cross-examine, you know, their witnesses, our witnesses, all that. But our narrative and our story is so organized, especially if I'm on the case, that I want my attorney to be so prepared that they're able to utilize their strength in questioning each witness, their opening, their closing statement, you know, really being able to orchestrate those to the best of their ability. And so I hope I answered your question in saying that there are several witnesses in a capital trial, in my, in my only capital trial, honestly, October 2019, I had 16 mitigation witnesses and four experts forensic experts that testified um, to assist us in sharing the whole life of my client and how he got to be in this courtroom today. So say, say in this particular trial, did your attorney uh, include some of these mitigation uh, processes in the guilt trial as well? Some right. attorneys so do that's that. a yeah, good question. Yeah, good question because that's a real sexy thing these days, the mitigating circumstances of the crime. Mm-hmm. So doing a mitigation investigation, definitely you can front load mitigation in the guilt innocence part of the trial, but you have to do a thorough mitigation investigation to discover what might be the right. mitigating circumstance around the crime. Right. So knowing that, yeah. I put a thousand hours into this case and we're here at trial now. The, mm-hmm. in this case in particular, it was, um, a self-defense. So what are the mitigating circumstances in that trial were that, you know, my client did suffer from anxiety throughout mm-hmm. his childhood and adult life. And so he was in a position where he felt he had to defend himself. And the way we were able to front-load mitigation was having a forensic neuropsych testify to my client's brain development and how he processed stress. He wasn't intellectually disabled. He did test positive for having anxiety, and she was able to testify before we gave the case to the jury. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... um so in your case, the um, the guy the guy was charged with first degree murder, capital murder, 
and but but your defense was self-defense so clearly that didn't the jury didn't buy that and they convicted him of murder yes interesting interesting and why do you think why do you think the self-defense um did did your client testify yes he did okay and why do you think the jury didn't believe him I think, honestly, they believed some of it, but they couldn't believe all of it. And I think that the facts were that there were three dead bodies, and that's kind of hard to overcome. Mm -hmm. And some of the, you know, positioning of the bodies and or some of the circumstances that the DA were able to bring up, just they they weren't able to come to that conclusion. We had a lot of good things going for our case. We had a lot Mm -hmm. of, you know, wonderful, um, testimony. Our client did great on the stand. Um, he was honest, forthright, you know, vulnerable. Um, but it just depends on how you unpack that information. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you why they didn't believe his self-defense story. I just knew that we had to be prepared for punishment. And I can say, because I was in the courtroom, that whenever they delivered that verdict of guilt, they were crying. Mm-hmm. And so do you attend the trial from beginning to end? How does that work? Yeah, my if my attorneys want me to, I sure do. And a lot of the non-capital cases, I don't. Um, because that's kind of me coming on as a consultant. At that time, um, the mitigation work that I do in criminal defense, or excuse me, in capital murder cases in trial is or helping with the witnesses to get to and from the courtroom, making sure that they're in order, keeping the trial run down, which is a tool that I use in my mitigation package to the attorneys, but making sure that that's updated every day and that we are able to roll with the punches. And then at the end of court that day, I go and I look at the trial rundown again and I say, this is what's going on with these witnesses. This is where we're at. This is the order that we're going to go in today if we have to switch it or change it. But most of the time we really don't have to change it. And how I organize that trial rundown, like I said, it's kind of like a news rundown. And Uh I do the, um, it's really cool that I'm focused on three or four mitigation themes. And those mitigation themes, I'm proving them up through the narratives of each mitigation witness and possibly a expert. So I'm saying, okay, you know, auntie's going to go here, the teacher's going to go next, then the sister, then the mitigation expert. And that kind of completes, those four people complete the evidence or the knowledge, the information, the words to support the mitigation theme that we are showcasing. And then do you testify, Victoria? No, never. Never. Because many times uh, somebody who is the the social historian, like what you're doing, uh, they're the ones that testify that pulls everyone together pulls all the all the details together right and in texas and particularly we don't testify mitigation specialists don't testify because our work product is you know secured by the attorney like as attorney work product so if i were to testify that means that the da would get access to my whole investigation 
Right. That's true. That's true. But that's that's a decision the attorney makes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> it's always yeah. the rules so, I mean, are I always think that so it's in different. the best interest of the client, right? <laughs> yeah, different. Well, it, it depends. Yeah, I think it's, it actually depends on whether you know what is which is best interest of the client. Okay, mm-hmm. so, um, so you're kind of a conductor. Yeah, good word. <laughs> That's what a you conductor. Do. What a good word. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know. Um, that some word when when you're talking to people, some words are hot button words that you kind of never use. Mm-hmm. For example, like like you wouldn't want to say um, uh, things like "Were you molested?" For example, you right. wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to use the word "molest" no. because even the word "abuse" isn't a good right. word. So right. because uh, they don't it, see it as that, they might not see right. it as abuse. Yeah, because I see it as normal often, often as right. normal. So, have you ever heard of a mitigation specialist by the name of Charlotte Holman? Yeah, she's the baddest, the best. She's the first. Yeah. She's the grandma. Yeah. She's yeah. the one. She's an anthropologist too. She's the yes. That's the yes. lady. May she rest in peace. Exactly, exactly. But I have I've had an opportunity to interact with her many times. We have a awesome. we have a yeah, we have a death penalty. Actually, you should know about this. Do you know about the death penalty conference in California? In February? Uh-huh. Yes. Have mm-hmm. you have you ever attended? Yes, yes I've attended. And have I know you? the one this <laughs> is yeah, I've attended not as a speaker, as a as a attendee, as a participant. Yeah. Okay. I've been attending, I've been attending since 91 (laughs) because I'm a really old person (laughs) and I've, and I've been a speaker a few times and, uh, but anyway, um, Charlotte Holman once said, which I will never forget this comment. She's, and she said, never ask if somebody's been abused. And she gave the example, and maybe you've heard this, Victoria. She gave the example of saying, uh, what I ask is, has your father ever done anything that made you uncomfortable? And she said, uh, I never expected the answer that I got. And the answer was, well, yeah, I, uh, I really was uncomfortable when our, our dad would put me and my siblings in a gunny sack and raise us over a fire and smoke us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Right. Wow. So <laughs> you would never get that answer with another kind of question. Mm-hmm. Good point. And that's exactly right. And yes, I heard similar stories like that um, from her. Like how amazing. Yeah. Just to be so thoughtful of open-ended questions, to be so thoughtful of the words that you use. And in mirror interviewing, you're using the language that they are using. Because you know that they are comfortable with those words, that that's the way that they express themselves to you and how they possibly will express themselves in an affidavit or, you know, on the stand potentially, right? So, yeah, that's exactly right. right. It's just being so thoughtful of these words 
And whenever I took a, I took a course and I read a book about nonviolent communication from Mm -hmm. the nonviolent communication center, excellent organization. And words have a frequency, a vibration. Be so thoughtful of the words that you use in your day-to-day life. But in criminal defense, you have to be so thoughtful of it because there's so much judgment, shame, disappointment going on mm-hmm. around the subject matter that we are interacting in together. And so being so conscious to, like, think of what they, what words you're mitigation witness or your client might be using and utilize those same words and or just ask them, what does that mean? What does that word mean to you? Or like when you say that, this makes me think of this, 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 and you start sharing about your life or your experience with that Mm -hmm. word or what comes to mind for you. And then they are like, oh, okay, this is where this person's coming from. This is what I actually mean. No, Victoria, I don't mean that. I mean this. This means Mm -hmm. that to me. Okay, we're getting on the same page more exactly. and more every interview, every hour that you spend with this person. And you're unpacking information that nobody's ever spoken of out loud. Girl, you are right. You couldn't yeah. make this stuff up. Mm-hmm. You know, and the truth, when you want to know the truth and you think that in that saying, you know, the truth will set you free. So mm-hmm. true. And what that is actually, that being able to be heard or be listened to or to be able to share that information means so much to, means so much, you know, just, I don't even know if it means anything to them unless they tell me, but it does mean a lot to me to be like, wow, look at what this person is sharing with me. It, this information is a gift, not just for the case, but it's them sharing a really tender spot in their life that Mm -hmm. they think perhaps I need to know to help them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You do good work, girl. (laughs) You do good work. So what? I'm in it, girl. I'm in it for the outcome, girl. (laughs) Yes. So um, what advice, other other than buying and reading your book and getting your signature, what advice do you have for people like me uh, to to start doing mitigation evidence? Great, great question. Great question. So my advice always is, is that, you know, there's other really great national organizations that have seminars and webinars now that can really assist you. And one of the ones that I love the most is out of Baltimore are Advanced Real Change. Totally get that ED on your show. But that, that organization is doing the most for mitigation in a nonprofit way, for sure. Like the trainings, the resources, um, just, I mean, I really do think that having some professional support or understanding is probably the first where you need to go to figure out, hey, is this for me, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I would say um, after that, it's going to be doing stuff that's kind of out of the realm of criminal defense a little bit, but totally mm-hmm. in line. Mm -hmm. understanding frontal lobe development, understanding zero to three years old brain development and the Mm -hmm. basis of the stuff, you know, like just getting a textbook about um, behavioral psychology would totally just reading the chapters and doing the exercise is going to help you shift your filter 
I also recommend for people to look into another organization that I love so much is Communication Across Barriers, which is a poverty-informed training that will get you into a position to understanding what poverty really is and what it's not and become Mm -hmm. a poverty-informed investigator, become a trauma-informed investigator, which there's a lot of trauma-informed workshops and webinars to help you shift your filter, get your filter prepared to starting to do mitigation because it's a big shift in my mind between Mm -hmm. like lawyer, investigator, mitigation specialist, forensic expert. Um, And then the big thing, the probably the most important thing is the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond open the floodgate to doing anti-racism work. Oh, good. The People's Institute for Survival and Beyond gives you the analysis, the real history about racism in our country mm-hmm. that will help you understand as a white woman, I'm mm-hmm. white, <laughs> that what that what you're doing, if you're not helping, you're harming, and what you can do or what you can't do, how you navigate the stuff that you can't do. But get the analysis. And I believe that the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond is the best analysis understanding to opening the door, opening your mind, shifting your filter to doing anti-racism work in criminal defense. Excellent. Excellent way to close, Victoria. We're we're almost at the end of our program, but thank you. So the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, the Mm -hmm. the first one you said was Advance Real Change? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And the the other one was um, Communication Communication Across Barriers? Communication Across Barriers. Yeah, Communication Across Barriers, yeah. Okay. Excellent resources. Thank you. I will definitely look into them. And uh, and in closing, if you will send me an email, uh, Victoria, I want to connect with you offline. Oh, I would love it. Thank you so much. And thank you for the time and, and the listening. And I'm happy to learn from you. Thank you. I appreciate that. We all Don't learn we? from each other, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks for joining the show. And to the rest of you, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.